America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. January the 1st, 2008, the day that New Hampshire legalized civil unions for same-sex couples, and the day a bird flu outbreak was confirmed to have been detected in Bangladesh. Tuesday the 1st of January 2008 would also be a day that would end in tragedy for an Irish family living in Spain. A 15-year-old girl left her friend's house that Tuesday evening after a day of fun-filled activities never to be seen or heard from again. Rivia del Sol, a Spanish haven filled with golden beaches and stunning homes, was spun into a world of confusion and uncertainty. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. Before we delve into this case, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to the people behind the Small Town Murders app for sponsoring this episode. This is one of Katie's favourite games to play, my brand and production manager, and if I ever look over whilst we're working and see her on her phone, I know for a fact that this is a game that she is playing. I love playing along with all of the characters, including Nora Mystery and Deputy Shanahan. Small Town Murders puts your detective skills to the test and allows you to investigate crime scenes and solve murder mystery cases in this awesome free crime mystery puzzle game. With thousands of levels to choose from and every crime being a puzzle, you get to uncover evidence, solve puzzle games, unlock clues and narrow down the suspects list. Make sure you download the game before it's too late. There is currently a special promotion running for new users, which gives you in-game boosters to help you solve those extra tricky puzzles. Again, thank you so much to Small Town Murders for helping to keep this channel afloat. You can find a link to download the app on your iPhone, Android, Amazon phone, Windows phone and Samsung phone, all of the phones at the top of the description and in the pinned comments. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Amy Fitzpatrick was born in the Kulok area of Dublin, Ireland on the 7th of February, 1992 to parents Audrey and Christopher Fitzpatrick. She was a happy-go-lucky child who was always smiling and brought a bright spark of light into the Fitzpatrick family. Amy had an older brother called Dean, who was two years her senior, and together with their parents, they formed the cheerful Fitzpatrick family of four. For a few years, it would seem as if the Fitzpatrick family were nothing but happy. An idealistic example of the modern family. 
Unfortunately, though, within the four walls of the Fitzpatrick family home, it was a different story. Amy's parents seemed to have been going through one rough patch after another, ultimately resulting with her parents separating. Following the separation, Amy, Dean, and their mother, Audrey, moved to an apartment in Dublin, where they lived as a family of three. A few years after the divorce had been finalized, Amy's mother, Audrey, decided that she should get back out there on the scene, and she actually ended up starting a long-term relationship with a new man. This new man was called David Mahon. David and Audrey quickly became close, and he ended up moving in with the family. In 2004, a few years after David and Audrey had started dating, the new family decided to pack their bags and move to the Riviera del Sol in the Mijas Costa region of Spain, as the region held better job prospects for David. They wanted to start afresh, turn a new leaf. Riviera del Sol is a well-known spot in the south of Spain and is popular with both British and Irish expats, with 48,446 British nationals migrating to Spain in 2004 alone. David, Audrey's new man, was an estate agent by trade, and he decided that he wanted a change of scenery. He knew that Spain was an area that he, he knew he would be able to sell properties quickly, and that he'd be able to earn extra commission on each sale, a win-win situation in his eyes. The tropical sun and easy money. By the time the family moved to Spain in 2004, Amy had turned 12 years old. She quickly made friends following the move, spending her time out in the Spanish sun with her new friends as any young teen would. Amy was a big dreamer, and she had a deep love for animals. She naturally turned her attention to a career involving animals, being quickly pulled in the direction of veterinary practice. But unfortunately, Amy would never get the opportunity to pursue this dream. On New Year's Eve 2007, 15-year-old Amy Fitzpatrick texted her best friend to see what she was up to. After all, it was New Year's Eve, and it was a good reason to celebrate. Amy's best friend texted her back, telling her that she had to babysit her younger brother that evening. And Amy decided that she didn't really want to go out that evening, so asked her best friend whether she could come over and keep her company, to which she agreed. As the clock struck midnight and Amy and her best friends welcomed in the new year, Amy decided to call her mum to wish her a happy new year. Though Amy's phone was an Irish phone, which meant that calling her mum would have cost a bomb. So she asked her best friend to borrow her Spanish landline phone to place the call. Amy dialed in her mum's number, transferring the contact information from her own cell phone to her best friend's landline and dialed. This call was placed at just after midnight, going into the 1st of January 2008. This information may seem very detailed for no reason, but it is very important within the events of this case. We've used direct testimony from Amy's best friend herself in constructing this timeline of events. According to her best friend, Amy did in fact have a Spanish phone, which she could have used to make her calls, but her stepfather, well, not quite stepfather, but her mother's boyfriend, Dave Mahon, had actually smashed it for reasons unknown during an argument about two weeks before New Year's Eve. 
On the 1st of January 2008, Amy and her best friend decided that they would go into the nearby town of Frenhiola to go shopping and to hang out, though as it was New Year's Day, most of the stores were actually closed. Eventually, they walked back home to Amy's best friend's house, and Amy then asked whether she could stay over uh, overnight again. Amy's best friend told her that because she'd stayed over the night before, she wasn't too sure whether her mum would let her stay for another night. Amy's best friend only lived a short walk away from the Fitzpatrick family home, and the pair regularly walked across the neighbourhood to get to their respective homes. After being told that she probably wouldn't be able to stay over for another night, Amy left her best friend's house saying her goodbyes and set off back to her home at around 10pm that New Year's day. There were many different routes that could be taken between the homes, but Amy would regularly use a dirt path which ran between the two different neighbourhoods. Taking these kinds of dirt paths and shortcuts was a regular occurrence with the members of her friendship group. They would often just turn up at each other's houses to hang out and chill around the neighbourhood. I'm sure this is something that everybody can relate to growing up. There was always those back alley routes that you'd go to to get to your friends' houses. The parents of these teen girls in this group had also become quite good friends and the entire group had become a somewhat large extended family. They were all a tight-knit and happy group of friends. When Amy left her friend's house that night, it was with the promise that she would be back the next morning for them to hang out again. We came to my house, we had something to eat, and then we went back out, we went around Zocco and that, and about 10 o'clock we came home and she got her stuff and, and said she'd knock for me at six o'clock the next morning. When Amy left, she was wearing her best friend's clothing and was carrying a duffel bag filled with her own clothes that were dirty as she had stayed for that night and she needed some new clothes that day. Sadly, that night in January was the last time Amy Fitzpatrick has ever been seen. No more officially confirmed sightings have occurred since. Interestingly, due to the fact that Amy regularly stayed over at her friends' houses in the local area, Amy's mother Audrey didn't report her missing until the 3rd of January. That's two days after she left her best friend's home to walk home. It was only after she had failed to return home and after her family had looked for her at her friend's houses that she decided to report her as missing. Sadly, their search efforts yielded them no results. The last time Audrey, Amy's mother, heard from her was on New Year's Eve when they had that phone call. Audrey and David had been out at a party while Amy had gone over to her best friend's house. And as we spoke about earlier, at midnight, Amy called her mother to wish her a happy new year. And she actually told her that she would see her the next day on New Year's Day. In the days following Amy's disappearance, posters were plastered all over the Mijas Costa area of Spain by Amy's family and her friends. The investigating police, the Guardia Civil, have organized a major search of the area tomorrow morning and are seeking volunteers. But today, it was left to a small group of Amy's friends at the school gates to hand out leaflets with her photo, seeking information and offering a reward. The police spent days combing through the local areas, trying to find any evidence or clues as to where Amy could have gone. Detectives enlisted the aid of sniffer dogs in the search, who were combing through the ravines that surrounded the areas, looking for any of Amy's belongings, anything 
which could give the police a clue as to what had happened to Amy. A dimly lit dirt path quickly became the subject of the police's attention, this dirt path that connected the two neighbourhoods where Amy and her best friend lived. When the investigators asked Amy's parents about this path, neither David nor Audrey knew what the police were talking about. They had no idea about the existence of this dirt path. Apparently this path was just a shortcut that had been frequented by the teens of the area and no adults used it or even knew about it. It was such a hidden away path that you would never even think that it would be there. Amy walked from the house just behind us here up to our house. It's about a 10 minute walk. We didn't even know this laneway existed. Uh, the kids still walk this way. One of the main things that confused the police about this case was that Amy's Irish phone, the phone that her stepdad had smashed, had been found in her bedroom during a police search of her house following her disappearance. How had her phone, the Irish phone, the one that she had used to transfer the contacts to the landline phone at her best friend's house, ended up in her bedroom if she had never made it home? Did Amy, in fact, make it home before she disappeared? Did she come home and go back out again? Or did she fall victim to something within her home? Was there some kind of foul play involved? Perhaps someone she knew had been involved and made sure to put her phone in her room so she couldn't be tracked. The fact that her Irish phone was found in her bedroom is very bizarre to me. While Amy's best friend was the last person to have seen Amy, a confirmed sighting in the flesh, there were a few leads that the police received and began to chase up. These leads placed Amy away from her friend's house and away from her own house. These leads entailed witnesses' statements that Amy had been seen in a local bar after she had left her friend's house. These witnesses told the investigators that they had seen her talking to people in the bar. Now, the police didn't immediately find this um, witness testimony to be odds. That was until they realised that Amy hadn't just gone to the bar to get a drink on the way home. I mean, after all, she was 15 years old. Amy had actually been seen talking to a mystery blonde. I'm unsure of the any of the descriptions of this mystery blonde, whether it was a man, a woman, or anyone else, um, everything in between. In this bar, she was seen seeing this, she was seen talking to this mystery blonde in the bar hours after her last reported sighting. The detectives decided to change their focus more on Amy's history and the months leading up to her disappearance. And as it turns out, in those months leading up to her going missing, Amy had become very unhappy living in Spain and wanted to return to Dublin to live with her actual father and her other family members. Now, this fact was actually well known by anyone who knew Amy, and it wasn't much of a shock to her friends that she was so ready to just leave Spain and go back to Dublin. Since settling in Spain, the Fitzpatrick family had done really, really well for themselves, and at one point they owned eight separate homes across Spain. Even with this success, which from the outside must have made the Fitzpatrick family seem perfect, there were cracks in the facade. According to some sources, Amy was constantly fighting with her mother and with David, these sources don't specify what the arguments were about, but we know that they were very loud and oftentimes violent, as we learned from the argument between David and Amy that resulted in her Spanish phone being smashed. 
Amy would actually leave home for weeks at a time to try to reduce the time she had to spend in the home with David. It would seem that there was a lot of tension within the household, especially between Amy and David. Despite this tension at home, Amy loved her brother Dean deeply, and they shared a really close bond. When Amy disappeared, Dean was devastated. Two weeks after Amy went missing, he wrote a letter to his sister, begging her to come home. We really miss you and are all worried sick. The house is just empty without you and all your noise. If you're in some place where you can't come home or get in touch, then don't be scared. The December before she went missing in 2007, Amy and her family were scheduled to return to Dublin so that they could spend time with their family over Christmas. Unfortunately, this trip was actually postponed. Amy was absolutely devastated that she was unable to return back home to Dublin. And so the family had actually rearranged this trip to coincide with Amy's 16th birthday in February of 2008 in the hopes that this would make Amy feel happier. They knew how much she wanted to return to Dublin. Amy had been regularly talking to her nan since the holiday in December had been postponed and had expressed her excitement uh, that she was finally going home around her birthday. She was so excited to go back to Dublin that she had never actually unpacked her suitcase that she had packed in preparation for the postponed December trip. After a few months of intensive searching and campaigning for anyone to come forward with information about Amy's whereabouts, the police hit a dead end. There were no new leads coming to light, and it seemed as though Amy just disappeared into thin air, never to be seen again. Since the police had no new leads, the police's presence on this case started to diminish. And within a year, there was hardly any police officers still working on finding Amy. Despite this, Amy's family still continued to rally together to try and find any information they could to piece together what exactly happened that night. Once the case went cold, the Fitzpatrick family decided that they could no longer live in the Riviera del Sol area and eventually packed up and moved back to Dublin Island. They, they didn't want to live in an area which constantly reminded them of a tragedy. In the months following Amy's disappearance, there was a lot of uncertainty in the press over what her home life was like in Spain, and it was all brought into question under media scrutiny. Many people who knew Amy put their opinions forward, and there was no clear public understanding of what happened that night or in the months leading up to Amy's disappearance. I'll try to give you as much information on this part of the case uh, as I can and in the most unbiased way possible so that you can form your own opinion as to what happened to Amy. Now, Amy regularly wrote in a diary and her diary entries were released to the press by her aunt, her actual father's sister, a few months after she had gone missing. Amy's aunt believes that the public deserved to know how her niece was living her life before she went missing. The diary entries depicted Amy as a sad and lonely child who missed her home in Ireland, detailing how she had to forage for food in bins. In one of the entries, Amy drew herself living in a cardboard box with an arrow pointing to the bins where she foraged for food. This image was accompanied by text which said, quote, I smell of dog shit and I haven't had a shower in two years and I moved into my new house today, and it's quite small and it's not been painted. I'm hoping to paint my cardboard box soon. Amy's mother Audrey and some of her friends slammed Amy's aunts for releasing these 
diary pages and for agreeing to talk to the press about them. They claimed that the reports were wildly inaccurate and taken out of context. They then insisted that Amy was a normal teenager who never went without food. Audrey was quoted saying that Amy's aunt's claims were insulting, quote, a kick in the teeth. This woman says now that she will never give up her search for Amy, but where was she before my daughter vanished? The last contact she had with Amy was three years before she vanished. Amy's father, Christopher, backed up his sister, the aunt who had released the diary entries, and his sister, the aunt, regularly spoke out about wanting to find her missing niece. In response to Audrey's comments, she said that, quote, it doesn't matter when I last saw Amy, whether it was three years ago or six, she is my blood relative and I won't rest easy until I find the truth. Even with this hostility between the family and Amy's father and his sister, they insisted that they could back up their claims with evidence. The evidence in question was a letter that had been written and sent to the Irish embassy in Madrid, Spain. This letter had been sent to the embassy in 2005, three years before Amy vanished. In this letter, a woman whose daughter went to school with Amy raised concerns about the teen's welfare at home. She wrote that Amy was scared for her safety and that she wanted to move back to Dublin to live with her father. The most chilling part of the letter was that she wrote that it was, quote, probable that she will disappear. Further to this, one of Amy's friends and her friend's mother also spoke out about how scared Amy was of David, her mother's boyfriend. Quote, I don't think Amy liked Dave. I was 13 at the time. I didn't see how upset she really was, but now I can see it. I understand it. Was David the reason for Amy's disappearance? Did the tension in the home become too much for Amy? In August of 2008, the Fitzpatrick's lawyer, who had been part of this case, actually had a break-in at their home. In this break-in, nothing of value was taken, despite the fact that a lot of expensive items had been left out on show around the house. The only thing that was taken from the home was Amy Fitzpatrick's laptop and mobile phone, her Spanish phone, the phone that had been taken from her bedroom for analysis after her disappearance. Why exactly this lawyer had possession of these items just about his house instead of them being held by the police in evidence is unknown. Later in 2008, Audrey, Amy's mother, hired a private investigator firm to bring a new set of eyes and a fresh perspective to the case after the police had no luck in finding any new information. These private investigators are actually still working on this case to this day. In June of 2008, six months after Amy's disappearance, Audrey received a phone call from a man who claimed he knew information about Amy and her whereabouts. He said that he had vital information that the Fitzpatricks needed to be able to find her. Quote, she had been kidnapped, he said, and was in Madrid, and the police were not to be involved. After agreeing to not get the police involved, the man said he would ring Audrey back with a name and address. Five hours after the phone call, Audrey received a text from the same phone number. Quote, can you pay us 500,000 euros, yes or no? Send your answer now and we'll send you all the info you need. Audrey immediately got the police and her own private investigators involved and they found that the numbers used were both prepaid numbers which had never been registered to anyone. This meant that they couldn't be traced or tracked, making this lead an unfortunate dead end. 
I'm not sure whether they actually replied to this or tried to give them the money or anything like that within this. It's not been released as this case is still ongoing. In 2009, Audrey, Amy's mother, started writing a book which detailed the pain that she and the rest of her family went through in the year after Amy's disappearance. This was her way of remembering her daughter and giving the public another way to understand Amy's case and all the information that she could talk about. Up until 2012, there had been very little new evidence brought forward to help in this case. Then in May of 2012, it was reported that the Irish gang leader, Eric Lucky Wilson, he went by the nickname of Lucky, had killed Amy Fitzpatrick. This information had been given to David Mahon, uh, Amy's mother's boyfriend, and Amy's mother through a source on Facebook. This source insisted that they had heard Lucky boasting about killing Amy Fitzpatrick over a drink he was having in a bar. Lucky was telling his friends that he had gotten away with his crime and that he would never be caught, as four years had already passed and he had never even been considered a suspect in the case. David and Audrey were quick to involve the police with a renewed hope that they would finally find out what happened to Amy. Lucky Wilson has been linked to the death of at least 10 people in and around the Riviera del Sol area and is currently serving a 23-year jail term in Spain for these crimes. Some people believe that the blonde stranger that witnesses described Amy to have been talking to in the bar was Lucky Wilson, and this was where they believe Amy unfortunately met her tragic end. While this theory has never been confirmed, it is still a possibility. The main suspect in the public's eyes was Amy's mother's boyfriend, David Mahon, based upon the disdain that was known between the pair. Unfortunately, this is all we know about the Amy Fitzpatrick case, but this isn't where the family's tragedy ends. Even now, there is no clear understanding as to what happened to Amy that night, and it could be that we might never know the truth. Sadly, for the Fitzpatrick family, the disappearance of Amy wasn't the only tragedy they would have to face in their lifetimes. On the 26th of May 2013, Dean Fitzpatrick, Amy's elder brother who she had been very close to, was stabbed to death over an argument that began because of a bottle of water. This argument was between the then 44-year-old David Mahon, Amy and Dean's mother's boyfriend slash fiance, and the 23-year-old Dean. Before this happened, Dean had been working on getting his life back on track after the disappearance of his sister, and had begun working and living in Dublin. He had found himself in a long-term relationship with a woman he loved, and they had just had a baby together. His girlfriend had a daughter from a previous relationship, but that never once put Dean off. He actually loved being a father figure to this little girl, and they were excited to have another child in their family. On the 4th of June 2013, the Fitzpatrick family finally laid Dean to rest. There was a delay with the funeral due to a legal dispute between Dean's parents, his actual father Christopher and his mother Audrey. Neither of them could agree on the best way to proceed with the funeral and they both wanted to take charge. Eventually, Dean's body was released to his girlfriend, who was then able to arrange the funeral. Audrey, who was distraught over the entire affair, naturally, attended the removal service the evening before the funeral. But by the time the funeral rolled around the following day, she was too devastated to attend the funeral and had been taken ill, so she was unable to say goodbye to her only son. On the 12th of May 2015, two years after David had stabbed Dean, Audrey finally married the man of her 
dreams. The pair had been engaged for over eight years, but their plans were put on hold after Amy vanished. According to one source, the pair decided to postpone any wedding plans they had until they felt more able to do so without, quote, Amy's presence in the ceremony. Sadly, Audrey was missing both her children when she walked down the aisle. She hoped that this wedding would help to bring her family closer together. When Dean's partner, his girlfriend, heard of this, she was shocked as Audrey had only ever seen her grandson twice in a few years. The wedding definitely brought the family closer together, right? Definitely. There were many people who attended the wedding that were shocked that Audrey had even gone ahead with the marriage. While it was known that David killed her son Dean, many people also believed that he had a role to play in the disappearance of her daughter Amy. David Mahon was granted a bail application to go to Spain between September 1st and the 15th, 2015, for an anniversary of Amy, but we were unable to actually determine why exactly this anniversary had been in September and not in January when she went missing or in February at around her birthday. This bail application was granted because the courts knew that David and Audrey, Amy's mother, always travelled back to Spain to be close to Amy and they deemed him to not be a flight risk for this trip. Finally, on the 13th of June 2016, David was sentenced to seven years in prison for the manslaughter of his stepson, Dean Fitzpatrick. After the trial against David, Christopher, Amy and Dean's father, spoke out saying that he thought David should have received a much longer sentence than the one he was given. Christopher was also upset that David called himself Dean's stepfather, saying that, quote, he wasn't even married at the time, it's just what he called himself, that's it. The rest of the Fitzpatrick family who had been present at the trial seems happy to see the man responsible put behind bars, stating, quote, It has been a long road to get here. Today has given us some closure. Dean's death has been a huge loss to our lives, and we will never forgive the man who killed Dean. He has put us through hell and back. In early 2018, at the age of 47, David was diagnosed with nose and throat cancer and was taken regularly from the prison to the hospital to attend chemotherapy. Audrey was always present at these sessions and stood strong next to her husband, despite his prison sentence and despite him literally being convicted for killing her child, her only son. Just this past year in 2019, the Fitzpatrick family, backed up by Audrey Mahon, she was now Audrey Mahon after the, after the wedding, called for new forensic artist impressions and renderings to be created for Amy. Amy was only 15 when she went missing, and the family believed that being able to see what she would look like now at 26 years old might help the case. Both sides of the Fitzpatrick family have again called on the Spanish police to open a cold case investigation in a bid to solve the disappearance. Sadly, the family have been told that every avenue has been exhausted and that there is nothing more that the Spanish police can do. Though, on the 3rd of January 2021, news broke in the Olive Press, a local newspaper in the area Amy went missing, that a British man, who is said to have been associated with a drugs gang, is now under investigation in connection to Amy's disappearance. It is reported that a witness had overheard this British man talking with the witness's partner, the partner asking the man whether he had gotten rid of the mattress. The British man then went on to admit in the presence of the witness that he had become infatuated with Amy. The Fitzpatrick family has had enough tragedy to last them numerous lifetimes, with both of the children not making it to the age of 25. 
All we can hope is that eventually the Fitzpatrick family can find some peace, even without the knowledge of what happened to Amy, and that Dean's memory and Amy's memory will live on through Dean's son and through their family. We can only hope that this recent lead results in closure. And that's everything that I have for you in today's episode. Let me know what you thought of this case in the comment section down below. Again, a massive thank you to the people over at Small Town Murders for sponsoring today's episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. Follow me over on Instagram and Twitter. My voice might seem a little hoarse and a little rough. I might sound a little ill. It's because I was a bit ill last week. I had a test for um, Mr. COVID <laughs> yesterday um, and thankfully thankfully that came back negative this morning so I don't have that. It's just it seems a common cold which has been affecting my sinuses so I'm, I apologize for my voice. There should be a new video coming very soon every Sunday. Solved Sundays I think is what we're going with. I'm not sure. If you have a better idea of what to call it on Sundays, the videos every Sunday, um, let me know in the comment section below as well. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.